Welcome to the Living for Food pod with none other than your host, myself, Olivia Bria. Uh, Sorry, I was trying out a new intro there. This week on the pod, I interviewed the wonderful Grace Lynn. Grace is a New York Times bestselling author and illustrator who focuses on Asian American and Pacific Islander art and storytelling. She taught me some interesting historics and mythology behind your favorite Chinese food, some of which you most definitely would not expect. So please join me in welcoming Grace Lin. One, two, three, four. Hi, and great to meet you. Thank you so much for coming on. I'm excited to speak with you. You've got a lot of accomplishments, so I'm excited to dive in the mall. Oh, thanks. I'm so happy to be here. Of course. And as a, I'm a fellow writer. I don't know if you knew that too. So I have a lot of writing questions coming your way. Okay, good. (laughs) (laughs) I'm better at the writing questions than I am at the cooking questions. So I'm happy to go in that direction. (laughs) Yeah, that's what I figured, but just to make sure. (laughs) So let's get into your food background first. So one thing that I loved reading about as I was researching is that before becoming an illustrator and children's book writer, you wanted to be a champion ice skater. Yes. Was that something you tried at a young age or just something you enjoyed doing? Um, You know, it was never a serious thing. You know, I grew up in upstate New York, which is very, very cold and there was ice skating. And so uh, I, we did go ice skating when I was younger, like third third grade, fourth grade, Um, but it was never anything serious, right? Uh, But I remember in second grade, I feel like that's when I feel like that's when like Dorothy Hamill, you, I'm probably showing my age, but Dorothy Hamill is the big thing. Oh, I, I, know Dorothy. I, uh, I was a skater for a while, so I, I know Dorothy. Yeah, so, and I remember just being like, I want to be like her. And so uh, I remember in second grade being like, I want to learn how to ice skate. I want to be an ice skater. And so my parents were like, okay, we'll go, we'll go ice skating. And then, uh, but it was summertime. I don't know why it was summer that I found out about Dorothy Hamill. So, uh, but you have to wait until winter. So I used to draw pictures of myself as an ice skater, like over and over and over again until winter came. We finally went ice skating. And I realized that I did not find ice skating as much fun as, (laughs) as drawing myself as an ice skater. So I realized quite quickly that, um, uh, drawing was more fun for me than actually was more where my talents lied. (laughs) Yeah, I understand that. You just brought back something that I did when I was younger because I was a figure skater when I was younger, but only until high school, I kind of stopped. Um, but Dorothy Hamill was like my idol for a few years. I totally forgot. Like I did a whole school project on her and everything. <laughs> I loved her. What an yeah. icon. <laughs> I even wrote her a letter and she sent me a photo, a black, because it's back then, they, she's, they sent a little black, black yeah. white photo where she signed and I hung it up. <laughs> like, so, oh but I, I, I knew, even though I admired her quite a bit and I admire figure skaters quite a bit, I knew uh, I didn't have it. I didn't have it in me or I didn't have the desire to really go all the way to become one. <laughs> Yeah, that was, that's why I stopped before high school. They were like, you either wake up at 5am every day and you fully commit, 
or you don't. And I, I chose. Yes, and the they path were doing not. still like <laughs> figures. Like you had to do like now. I know that they don't. Do, they don't have. It's just mainly free skating, which I probably would have gotten a lot more into. But back then, it was like you had to be able to do the figures, and you had to practice the figures over and over again. I was yeah. like, nah, I don't want to do that. <laughs> <laughs> I know I had to take a few tests to you have to take a few tests to pass yeah. um, and those were very formal like you have to do the certain figures and that's where I slowly declined yes, in like the, interchange <laughs> loop and people. stuff like that yeah I was like <laughs> I was like no no that's yeah. no fun <laughs> yeah <laughs> exactly but you have two sisters both of which became scientists and then you became an artist mm -hmm. what was the dynamic in your family like uh, well, you know, my parents are immigrants. They're from Taiwan. Um, and so we were the okay. first ones born here in the United States. So, you know, it was a little bit, uh, the, the, we were a little bit of the stereotype. I guess the, re the reason why it's a stereotype is because it is very common uh, where like my parents were very much like, you have to be a doctor or a lawyer or, or you have to like be uh, something very academically high and so my sisters both of them uh achieved that very well my older sister i feel like she was like salutatorian and my younger sister was like up there too like i maybe she was salutatorian i don't know they were both very high up there my older sister went to mit yeah. my younger sister went to university of chicago but i was the black sheep <laughs> and so and i went to art school uh to their great horror uh so the dynamic in the family was that um that I was kind of the the one that they were like, oh no, what's she going to do? They were quite worried about me most of the time. Um, I remember yeah. uh, once we went on a vacation uh, to Europe and there was like a street artist and my dad like like took out money from his wallet and, and, and put it in his, like put it in the street artist hat. He's like, that's gonna be you someday. <laughs> oh, but he was supportive. Yeah, so he was supportive in his own way. You know? So, um, yeah. <laughs> so yeah, so they, they were, they tried their best to be supportive of what I wanted to do, but they found it very, very difficult to understand what I wanted to do. Yeah. Yeah. Because they were probably taught to go one way. So mm -hmm. they didn't know what to do when you threw them a little curveball. Yeah, I think so. And I'm not sure why I had it in me to throw them that curveball, but I did. <laughs> It was your passion. Yeah. No, no, it was my passion. But, uh, and also, but I was also very stubborn too. Like there's some, I think there's a lot of, a lot of, um, a lot of other friends and, and co cousins and colleagues who also had certain passions, but they were a lot more docile. I think I was a little bit more uh, headstrong. <laughs> <laughs> I, I have that gene sometimes. Yes. <laughs> things because you're stubborn but then it works out <laughs> yeah it worked it I have to say it worked to my benefit which I'm glad but you know um, now that I have a daughter of my own I'm like oh <laughs> it makes sense taste of it <laughs> I know my parents were worried when I moved to the west coast as a freelance writer so their concerns were valid <laughs> yeah I mean and it's understandable completely understandable but mm -hmm. But we all have to live our our own lives. I think that's the biggest thing that was hard for my parents as um, Asian immigrants, because in the Asian culture, uh, you know, your kids are seen as an extension of yourself, and so really, like, kids don't really aren't supposed to have like their own lives and dreams. They're supposed to just extend your own, you know, and like that's kind of like the idea. 
Uh, but okay. you know, here in the United States, are the idea is like we live our own lives and we make our own choices, and this, um, and that's kind of that's kind of the beauty of it, but also the heartbreak of many immigrant families, I think, of coming to that realization, you know? Yeah, that's really interesting. Total opposite. Mm -hmm. Completely. And then when you're grown up one way and you're thinking your kids are going to carry on whatever legacy you envision for them and then that doesn't happen, it's, it is a little bit heartbreaking for them, but it's also a lot of pressure on you. Yeah. And I think it's also a really nice uh, I think in the end, though, um, I think people, I think the way that we live here in the United States in some ways is is illuminating, though, because there's more than one way to carry on a legacy, you know? And so I think, at least yeah. for in my family, I think they, my parents have slowly realized, oh, she is still carrying on legacy. It's just, a, just in a way that they never they never planned. So um, so I think, it, right. I think it works out in, in the end. It's just a lot of adjustment. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, life is just a big adjustment, I feel like, everywhere you turn, so. Let's get into the topic of why we're here, and that's food. So we'll get into the beginning of your career in a second, because I want to get into that background, but I'm going to jump ahead to talk about your most recent book, Chinese Menu. It's about the history, myths, and legends behind your favorite foods, but was your family deeply rooted in your heritage growing up since uh, you mentioned they were immigrants or an interest you found later on in life? Um, kind of both. Okay, so I mentioned that I grew up in upstate New York, and um, we were actually the only Asian family in the area, uh, only marginalized family in the area when I was a child. Um, many more like um, many more Asian families moved in later on. But when I was in elementary school, uh, we were the only Asian family. So that meant I was the only Asian girl in my school, except for my sisters. And so uh, for a long time, I really rejected my Asian heritage. Um, and in, in lots of ways, it was really easy to reject my Asian heritage because, um, you know, there's back then, there was nobody that looked like me anywhere, nobody on TV or movies or magazines. Uh, so it was really easy for me in many ways to pretend that I wasn't Asian. Uh, and then when I grew older, um, I realized how much I had missed and I wanted to really embrace those roots that I had kind of rejected. And um, so I, I was kind of really searching for my Asian roots as I grew into adulthood. And when I was when I did look for them, I found that there was a couple of roots that did connect me to that part of my heritage and the two roots that were the strongest were the stories and the food <laughs> and so uh so I really leaned into those hard um and I really uh, especially and this book especially Chinese menu is kind of a culmination of those two roots like intertwined together to make this book because uh, you know, we ate Chinese food every day at home. Um, my father would tell stories about this Chinese food that we ate at home. You know, like, so it's mm -hmm. really, uh, this this book is like my strongest connection to my own heritage um, that I have. So that's why I'm delighted to share it with the world. Yeah, that's a, such a beautiful thing to be able to do it for yourself, but then 
have something tangible that you can show other people and hopefully impart that kind of wisdom and everything you learned in that journey on others and have them learn, especially children. Yeah. Yeah. Didn't have, you know, when you said you didn't identify um, or you at least tried to kind of pretend that it didn't exist. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, <exactly. laughs> and the idea being that like, hopefully a book like this and all across all of my books, because they all deal with Asian American culture, Asian culture, or mm-hmm. feature Asian characters. It's, it's kind of like a way that I hope that instills pride in, in um, young Asian kids in a way that I didn't have. So um, it's all, it's all interconnected and intertwined. It all comes full circle. Mm-hmm. It's a great thing. You mentioned um, you had quite a few Chinese dishes when you were growing up. Was there a Chinese dish that was a staple in your family? Yeah, so it's interesting because there was one Chinese restaurant in our town, but we, whatever we went out, uh, whenever we went out of our town, we also only ate at Chinese restaurants. So the only restaurants that I ever experienced as a child was Chinese restaurants. Um, so, which was really funny. Um, but even though it was Chinese restaurants. The food that we had at the Chinese restaurant was different than the food my mom served at home, even though they are both Chinese food. And um, as well, it's Chinese American. Yes, and so as time went on, I started realizing, like, oh, the food at the restaurant is American Chinese food, and the food that my mom cooks is more traditional Chinese. Um, and it was fun to kind of, in my book, to kind of find the connections between the two. Yeah, I was wondering. Oh, so you were asking about, yeah, and you were asking about which dishes. And so um, the book, Chinese Menu, um, it's it's about the, the American Chinese restaurant food. Um, and there's only one recipe in the book. Um, and the reason why there's only one recipe in the book was because, like I said, there was very few things that were in the restaurant that my mom cooked as well and one of the few things was scallion pancakes and so that's why the scallion pancake is in the, is in the uh, recipe is in the book uh, so yeah so scallion pancakes dumplings those were things that we had at home as well as in the restaurant but a lot of the other things my mom never cooked at home like mushu pork you know <laughs> we never had that at home we never had uh you know kung pao chicken or anything like that so right. but we ate it all the time <laughs> at the restaurant <laughs> Yeah, I'm, I know. Me too. I'm guilty of that for sure. Um, scallion pancakes, I think I've only had those once in my life and they were at a food festival. So I'm not even sure oh, that they were like they, so, crazy. Authentic, but. Yeah, they're pretty authentic, actually. Um, then, uh, but okay. sometimes they can be uh, you have to make sure you get them at a good place because sometimes they can make, be like really too doughy. But if you get them at the right place, they're really good. <laughs> Okay, yeah, I think that was my problem because they just tasted like dough. Yeah, yeah, you have to get somebody who can make them really like flaky and crispy and, you know. Okay, okay, so I'm coming over to your house then. (laughs) (laughs) Or I'll make them from your book, either one. (laughs) They're one of those recipes, though, that are specifically, they look simple, but they're not easy. And the the, the scallion pancakes are kind of like that. They were were, um, popularized by... Chinese Buddhist monk who uh, always carried like flour, um, onions, and um, oil with him and, and salt to make these to make these pancakes because this the ingredients are so simple. But there's the way to make it is actually not complicated. But you know there's like the rolling and then there's the coiling and then there's the rolling again. Like to make them so that they taste flaky and delicious the way that they're supposed to uh you have you have to go through the many step process to make sure otherwise they just taste kind of really bready yeah that's an art form too any any kind of 
um, heritage and cuisine is. I think the worst dish I've ever made, this was definitely, I think, Chinese-American dish. I'm really actually a good cook, but for some reason, I could not carry out this recipe because there was so many steps. Um, it was orange chicken. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. What was up with that? I, My dad was like, what does that smell? It does not smell good in here. And I was like, I don't know what I did. I think I browned it too much or something went awry, but well, that was my first attempt. <laughs> that's what I think is so interesting about um, American Chinese food. And that's why, that's one of the reasons why I made the book is because a lot of people equate American Chinese food as cheap food, right? And so they, it's because we equate it as cheap food, we think that it's uh, not high quality. But really, you know, American Chinese food is just as difficult to make as French food. It's got just as many steps and you need to know how to do it, like when to brown it and all like you need to have that touch just as much as you do with a lot of French cuisine. Yet French cuisine, we have put on this pedestal, you know, like and Chinese cuisine, we have not. Uh, so that's really one of the reasons why I did this book with the hope that we can. This book gives Asia, Chinese, American Chinese food a little bit more respect. That is so true. That's not a distinction I ever made because, yeah, French is considered a higher cuisine because mm -hmm. of the amount of intricacy that goes into it. But Chinese food has the same amount of intricacy and it's just maybe faster and then people equate it to. But it's I, not really that. No, it's not really. The reason is it's historic. I mean, the reason it's yeah. a historic reason why we we equate it as cheap food. And that be, that's because of the Chinese immigrants that came during the gold rush. And when they opened their Chinese restaurants, they had to price their food super, super cheap to get people to try it. And so because they priced their food so cheap, you know, it was cheap food, you know? And so, but that's a stigma that has not gone away over all, all these years. <laughs> yeah, no, that's absolutely correct. Would you say that you think that's probably the biggest misconception that the United States has about Chinese food in general? Uh, I, I think that is probably a big one. I think the, the fact that it's a, that they think it's a cheap food that doesn't have this beautiful, rich history that, like I said, like French food has. I think that's probably one of the biggest. And another uh, misconception, I don't know if misconception is the right word, but now that we've gotten so many more, we've been exposed to so much more of what we quote unquote call authentic cuisine, you know, authentic Chinese cuisine. Uh, so many of us uh, kind of look down at the American Chinese food, like, oh, Kung Pao chicken, you know, like, and we kind of uh, say, oh, it's not really Chinese. Uh, I, and I kind of, that always kind of bothers me too, because it is, it's true, the food that we eat at the Chinese restaurants here in the United States is quite different than the food mm -hmm. that uh, are in the restaurants in China. But that doesn't mean mm -hmm. it's worse. It just means it's different. And in fact, it's, it means, you know, it's been, it's been alternate and adapted to American tastes. And I think this, the, mm -hmm. the second biggest misconception is how people call this food Chinese food when it's actually really American food because it's been so adapted to American taste. So right. like during the pandemic, people would go eat at the pizza joint down the street and they would eat at the hamburger joint, but they wouldn't eat at the Chinese restaurant because they were so scared of uh, that, you know, it was from China, you know. But what yeah. was so, to me, ridiculous about that was that that 
Chinese restaurant had been there probably since like the 1920s, you know, like, so like that Chinese restaurant was just as American as the pizza shop, just as the, as the hamburger joint. And I think that's the second biggest misconception is, is that they don't, that people in the United States don't realize how American this Chinese food actually is. And it's it's something to be proud of, not something to disparage the fact that it's a bit Americanized, like just the way we're proud of hamburgers and the way we're proud of pizza, you know, like it's the same thing. Yeah, that's that's a really great point. It's just another iteration of a cuisine that we love and want to try. It's like Taiwanese American or or I mean, yeah, no, that was correct. Thai food. I was thinking Thai food or Italian American, like half the food here you get that's Italian isn't truly Italian, you know, but that's a great point to realize that these establishments really are American to the core. Yeah. And that's not a distinction that a lot of people make. Mm -hmm. So hopefully they'll learn now for this podcast. (laughs) (laughs) You know, and they, and hopefully we, the, the thing is that because this food has been so Americanized, that means if you're American, you can claim it no matter what, you know, no matter what your, your racial background is like, because it's American Chinese food. So like you can claim part of it. And so it's, it's ours, all of us, you know? So like, and I think that's something people here don't think they still think it's foreign food and that they, it's not a part of their own culture, but it is, it is. I like that a lot. That's honestly a distinction I never really made myself, I guess, maybe because I didn't think that in depth about it. Because when you go to the store, you're just like, I crave Chinese food. And then that's really the deepest you'll go. You know, people mm-hmm. don't really think as much ahead as maybe they should sometimes. Your first book, The Ugly Vegetables, was published in 1999. That book quickly went into excess. It won an award, was nominated for one, among other accolades. Let's first get into how the concept for the book came out and then how you felt about the quick success. Sure. Uh, Though I have to, uh, the Ugly Vegetables did not have quick success, uh, to be honest. It was. Oh, okay. I read that somewhere. So definitely correct. Yeah. (laughs) So it did not have quick success. Um, Here, I'll I'll give you the background and then, uh, but it did have sustained success, which is in some ways even better than quick success, you know? Oh, that's fine. Um, Mm -hmm. So. Uh, so I graduated from the Rhode Island School of Design in, gosh, <laughs> 1995, I think. You don't have to give <laughs> I know. Okay. I'll give you all the dates so now everybody can calculate my age. <laughs> so um, um, so uh, in children's book, uh, in illustration, with specific uh, goal to become a children's book illustrator. And back then, that was before the internet. So, you know, no Instagram, no websites. <laughs> so what you did was you just sent postcards of your artwork to different publishers all over the country and hope that somebody would pick up your postcard and say, I like this art. Let's, let's hire the, her to do a book. So uh, I, that was quite difficult. So it, uh, I kept, I sent out thousands and thousands and thousands of postcards until about 1990, 1997. Yeah. 1997. So two years, uh, I was sending out thousands of postcards, uh, 97, 
Uh, finally, I heard from somebody who said, you know, I've been getting your postcards for the past two years. Uh, I really like your work, but I've never been able to find any stories that match your artwork. Do you have any stories that go with your artwork, especially this last card you sent me? I really like it. And the card mm -hmm. that I sent him was a picture of me and my mom. Uh, well, I, I had, it was based on a memory of me and my mom working in the garden. Mm -hmm. And so mm -hmm. I was like, oh, okay. Yes, I have, I have lots of stories, which I didn't, but you know, yeah. <laughs> you'll, you'll have to grab any opportunity. <laughs> so uh, I, I wrote the story about me and my mom in the garden, how she would grow Chinese vegetables in the garden while everybody else in the neighborhood would grow flowers. And I used to be really embarrassed. And so I wrote that story. I sent it in. And to make a long story short, because remember, this is 97. So 98, the book didn't come out to 99. So it was quite, quite a journey. A lot of, yes, a lot of revision, yeah. a lot of this, a lot of that. Um, it became my first published book, The Ugly Vegetables. Now, uh, this book was published as a very, very small publisher. Now they're kind of mid-sized. It was it's Charles Bridge Publishing, but back then they were very, very small. My book, The Ugly Vegetables, was their very first fiction picture book. Up to then, they had only published non-fiction wow. books, and so okay. um, the book uh, got one starred review and it got on like two like best uh, like uh you know recommended re recommended year end books year end reading mm -hmm. list books and you know to a big especially now like a big five publisher now like they'd be like <laughs> who cares but to charles bridge back then which was a small publisher this being their very first fiction book they're like yay this is amazing <laughs> they were so excited um and, You're a legend. yeah so they were like <laughs> so excited and they were um it was a big deal to them you know they really tried to support the book and uh, like i said um, it wasn't a huge success but it was sustained and then over the years it just kind of it's been still like chugging away chugging away and now it's still in print and and still and it's earning me royalties so i'm very grateful to it and uh and i still love it so that's that's so it's yeah. it's the same sustained success of that book okay and then from there you went on to write more than a dozen books give or take mm -hmm. because you're you had your first book it was kind of their first fiction book did you feel more pressure writing your second book for it to kind of do well um, or you know um i mean you said sustained success so you know it it's, it was a much different you know, nowadays, I definitely would feel that. Um, and I actually feel it much more now than I did back then. Uh, it was a different mm -hmm. publishing landscape back then, number one. Um, and number two, I was so green <laughs> that I didn't really understand how things worked. And kind of like that, that yeah. like, ignorance is such a gift. <laughs> like, back then, <laughs> you have to remember, like I said, this is pre-internet days. And, um, and also, this is pre-Harry Potter days. Uh, so back then, um, publishers, especially in children's books, were really willing to give authors and illustrators many more chances than they are now. Like now, you kind of have, you, at least my impression, I won't speak for every, for like everybody, but my impression right, is like right. you got, you have one or two, two, maybe three books to kind of like prove yourself, you know. Back then, I mean, people, they had, they used to have children's book authors and illustrators you know published like 
eight or 10 books, but they believed in them. And so and it might take, the, mm-hmm. take their eighth book before they kind of quote unquote broke out. Right. Um, but they were fine with right. it because the children's book department right. was not expected to make money back then. <laughs> like, like I said, it was like pre Harry Potter. Like they were, it was just this cute little thing that like the publisher was like, Oh yeah, yeah, whatever you do. <laughs> so, um, so much has changed since then. Was I nervous about my second book? Yes and no, not, but nowhere near as much as I am honestly now, every time I put on, put out a new book, like now it feels much more do or die. It's kind of like, now it feels like mm-hmm. you're only as good as your last book. Back then it was kind of like, oh, we're building your career, you know? Right. And that's how it, I feel like it should be. I mean, it, your career should be all of your accomplishments tied in one, not your most yeah. recent, you know? It's interesting that you that you described it in terms of pre Harry mm-hmm. Potter. That's not something I really thought about in terms of how it affected the publishing oh. world because now everyone's looking for the next yeah. Harry Potter or the series to monetize. Yeah, Harry it Potter more. really changed everything in the publishing world, especially in the yeah. children's department. Like I said, up until that point, they didn't really expect children's books to make to make that much money. I mean, as long as they didn't lose money, right. they were fine. But like Harry Potter showed that they could make money you know and so the expectations got super high and of course with higher expectations it's a lot tougher you know oh yeah I totally understand that I think the books that I read growing up the magic Mm. treehouse series it's a big one Geronimo's still in Mm -hmm. do you know that one I was obsessed with Geronimo's (laughs) so cute um I think I think my sister did more of Magic Treehouse than me. I never got too into it. But the Percy Jackson series, I was into that. I love all the mythology and stuff behind that. That was so cool. When it came out into a movie, that was like my dream. So I guess it makes sense that (laughs) they want to kind of do that. You also have a novel named When the Sea Turns Silver. Mm -hmm. Uh, Did you find it more difficult undergoing a novel versus children's books? Um, So... So all of my books, I guess, are designated as children's books, mainly because they're for kindergarten to like sixth grade. So my novels, um, I have Where the Mountain Meets the Moon, Star of the Sky, When the Sea Turns to Silver. Those are probably about for like fourth, fifth or sixth graders. Um, So. Okay. That's what I was unsure of. So, yeah. So. You know, but it is very different writing a novel versus a picture book. I mean, there's a lot less pictures <laughs> for one thing. and um and you know it's it's a really different way of storytelling. I remember the first time uh, my first novel, The Year of the Dog, my editor came back and said, uh, "I need you to add at least two descriptions on each page because up to that point, I had only written um, picture books. And of course, I didn't put any descriptions in because I was going to, put it in the pictures right and so she was like you know there's right, not going to be right. these pictures you have to write it so uh it's it was a very it was a learning curve but um but i now i really enjoy both both i realized that to me i don't really care about writing or illustrating i just care about story you know i just care, care about telling the story mm-hmm. and whatever way tells the story best is what i like do parents often reach out to you about your books because they're rooted in life lessons and the integration of Chinese culture? So I'm curious if they like, um, or if this is a connection they have with their children and then you kind of get that feedback. Um, sometimes they do. Often, you know, usually it's when I do an event or something when I, um, when I mm-hmm. uh, have those kind of interactions. Um, some of them are super grateful. 
Uh, many of them ask me questions that are way beyond my, <laughs> way beyond my, <laughs> I'm like, I'm, I'm just an author. I'm not like, <laughs> I'm not like, a, like a, a therapist or a sage or like a, or a cross-cultural <laughs> expert or anything like that. Um, right, uh, but right. yeah, so I do get asked that. Um, I, it's sometimes I get a couple of messages online, but usually, um, usually that gets filtered through uh, my publicist or my coordinator or my all these different people who keep me organized yeah Uh, I feel like too because you're also a woman in the publishing and writing industry and you focus on Chinese culture I'm curious if you think that if there's like a lack of representation in the publicity industry for the group there definitely used to be um, and we could definitely use more when I started Mm -hmm there was very, very, very little, <laughs> very little any uh, diverse diversity in anything. Um, you know, my book, Chinese Menu, just hit the New York Times bestseller, which is, I'm so, oh, thank you. And I'm so proud and I'm so uh, proud of it, but I'm especially proud of it because I remember when I first started, the fact that any book with an uh, Asian character, a Black character, any kind of book that even had like Asian culture or or black culture or like any kind of culture other than the what we would call main street white American culture you know uh, for anything outside of that to hit the bestseller list was completely unheard of you know like like the fact that I became like this multicultural author and illustrator that I did all these Asian books it was kind of like well that's great but you know kiss any dreams of being on the bestseller list goodbye like that's never going to happen and so to me it's such it's such an amazing thing to see where we are now that like it's that that one of my books could actually hit the bestseller list is like, is almost like a miracle. when Mm -hmm. I think about where, where we were 20 years ago, you know, Uh, but we could still use so much more. I mean, even though my book's on there, if you look on it on there, uh, it's like the only book by a person of color on there, you know, and last week when I wasn't on there, there was nobody, you know? So like, I think we could go further. Um, We, I mean, I think we should go further, but, um, at the same time, I want to acknowledge how far we have come, and it's been really great. Right, right. I think I think we'll get there at some point. I mean, there's a lot of emphasis on multicultural generations now, especially whether it's Chinese, yeah. Mexican, uh, movie and movies too. The movie representation has, I'd like to think, it has increased. So I'm excited to see where that goes. And your books definitely cater to yeah. that so it's it's some. an exciting time and i hope that we keep going in this direction because i think it's it's only going to make things better you know for everyone going back to chinese menu what would you say is your favorite story that you kind of research i know i feel like you've answered this before but i personally wanted to ask <laughs> you so uh, so <laughs> the story that i i like i don't know if it's my favorite but the story that i really enjoy telling is the story of spring rolls. Um, so almost everybody that I know who's eaten in a Chinese restaurant knows what a spring roll is, or at least an egg roll, I hope so. Um, and so yeah. we call them spring rolls, not, uh, we call them spring rolls because uh, they're traditionally eaten during the spring festival. But uh, the name yeah. of the food has nothing to do with its origin story. Uh, the 
spring roll was actually invented because of a Ming dynasty minister who was accused of cheating. The thing is that he used to get Whoa. his work done twice as fast as all of his other colleagues. <laughs> and they were so jealous and they're like, he must be having somebody work for him. He is cheating. And they reported him to the emperor and they said, this minister is cheating. There's no way anyone can get their work done as fast as he is. So the mm -hmm. minister called, mm -hmm. the, the minister was called in by the emperor and the emperor's like, you know, how do you get your work done so quickly? And that's when the mm -hmm. minister gave away his big secret. And he's like, I can write with two hands. And that's why I can get my work done twice as fast. And of course, nobody believed him. Okay. And so because no one believed him, um, the emperor said, all right, here's like nine boxes of records. You have nine days to copy all these records. If you uh, can really write with two hands. You should be able to copy these records and no problem. No, no problem in that amount of time. Mm -hmm. So the minister went home, opened the record, the boxes, and then he realized there were so many records in the boxes that he would have to be working nonstop, night and day, without sleeping, without eating, even with writing with his two hands. So he started to get to work and started writing mm -hmm. and writing and writing and writing, not sleeping, not eating, just to try to finish copying all these records. Now, this minister had a wife who was really worried about him. And she was like, you have to eat. And he's like, I cannot eat. I must keep writing with my two hands. And so she's like, well, I'll feed you. I love the <laughs> you know? So she's like, I'll feed you. So she tries to feed him like soup and noodles. And he's like, no, no, I can't eat. I need my hands to write. And so she decided that she had to make a food that he could eat without using his hands. So she invented the spring roll, a rolled food that she could hold and he could bite off while he was writing with his two hands. And so that's how the spring roll was invented. And I just think that's such a funny story. <laughs> that's hilarious. That is not something I ever would have known had you not told me. That's a crazy story. It's so interesting where all of these things derive yeah. from. How did you you just research and find them that stories from old books talking well, to people um, kind of so thing? So some most that story actually was found. Uh, I actually hired a research assistant. Her name was Isabel Brand, um, and she was a Smith College student in, in Chinese studies. Um, so she actually found that one. I was actually going to tell the story about the Spring Festival, uh, but she found that one, and, and I was like, "That one's better. We'll use that one." Uh, but uh, what originally uh, I did was I had all these stories. Um, that I had collected over the years. Um, and I, uh, that like my father told me, that my relatives told me that I would see in books. And um, I asked her to find like secondary or third sources for each of these stories to make sure that we, that they weren't just something my dad made up. <laughs> so, um, so, she, so she did. And then she also found extra stories, you know? And so like, so for example, the spring roll was an extra story. She's like, oh, yes, I found your story, but this, I've also found this one. And I was like, Ooh. And so, um, yeah. so she was really indispensable. And so um, it was a mixture of both of our research. And honestly, like I said, I've been collecting stories for years and years. Uh, so she was like the, the fact verifier, even though it's not exactly, I guess it's mythology mm -hmm. verifier. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Some yes. sort of verification <laughs> is going on. <laughs> I'm curious, I, I'm not sure if this totally applies because you more lean into the stories of it all, but is there a person in, in Chinese folklore or history that you found yourself kind of identifying with? Hmm. Is there a person in Chinese folklore or history that I find myself identifying with? Um, I don't know if there's anybody I identify with, but I know there's many 
many uh, people I read about that uh, I really admired. Uh, one is uh, one is her name is Madame Ching, and she is a female pirate uh, during the Qing Dynasty. Oh. And uh, I've always wanted to do a book about her, and she's this. But you know, it's a little bit. Uh, I have to figure out how to like kind of clean it up for the kid audience <laughs> because she was like this she she started off as a prostitute and then she took over like the whole pirate fleet and she was so powerful of a pirate that the you know the emperor and the and the emperor and the kingdom kept trying to like take her down but she was so powerful they couldn't take her down until finally they just had to like uh, they basically had to buy her out and like she and she retired she basically retired and she actually has a happy yeah, yeah she I, had a happy I, ending yeah. she retired she opened up a brothel and she like and she lived happily ever after <laughs> that's amazing that is that's when you use your woman yes. influence to your best ability that's incredible i don't know maybe just the kids just say like yeah, she's I a have woman to figure of- out a different way <laughs> but like so that's why i've been thinking about this story a long time but trying to figure out how to like <laughs> like hmm. yeah i don't know if i'm the best one to consult on that <laughs> maybe get some experts but she was pretty amazing because um she would never allow any rape or um uh, of her soldiers and if she if, of not soldiers of her pirates and if they ever raped anyone she would she basically would kill them she would castrate them i support her. it <laughs> she would castrate them <laughs> and if they took any female prisoners she they, they either had to they had to marry the female prisoner or uh-huh. they had to marry them and have them as a wife or uh, or she she would um um push them off the boat <laughs> Wow. So she was very. <laughs> if I had a penny for every time I wanted to push a man off a boat. <laughs> yeah. So she was very, like, female, even for a prostitute and for somebody who, like, I think in her own way, she was a feminist, you know, like. <laughs> mm-hmm. Sounds like it. Yeah. So. Really? Maybe she was the one of the origins of feminism. Yeah. Honestly. <laughs> I, I would love for that story to go a little further because I feel like it's so interesting and not a lot of people know about her. Yeah, she's well in China. She's she's very famous. Like if you say anything like the pirate okay. of the Red Fleet or something like that, they'd be like, "Oh, Madame Cheng," you know. But here in the United oh, States, okay. here in the United States, uh, they might not. She's not as well known. I think they, you know, in the Pirates of the Caribbean, 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 Caribbean. Yes. <laughs> like I think you see I a little think bit. Both, yeah, you, you <laughs> like I think she has like a cameo in the background, but they make her like this like ugly haggard kind of. But she's actually supposed to be like incredibly beautiful because you know. <laughs> Of course, of course. So. <laughs> if, she's, if she's that successful, she's got to be. Yeah, she, used, some she knew how to use everything. <laughs> My gosh. <laughs> if only we were in the same era. <laughs> well, it, was, it sounds like it was a tough life. <laughs> yeah, it sounds horrible. Yeah. Um, I'm definitely glamorizing it a little bit. But, <laughs> yeah. but it would be a very interesting story. So, um, so someday, perhaps, perhaps that will be my first foray into adult literature. <laughs> Yeah, there you go. That would be actually, I, I would read that. Or so, YA, maybe you YA. Have, <laughs> you've got one customer at least. Yep. So. Okay, so let's talk about what's next for you. Do you have any other upcoming projects or anything else going on that you'd like to talk about? Sure. Um, I have a new novel uh, for young 
not YA, not adult, <laughs> no brothels. Mm -hmm. This one, uh, this a new novel that I'm working on right now. Um, it's uh, if you've ever gone to a Chinatown, you'll notice there's usually a Chinese gate that, that when you enter Chinatown, and in front of the mm -hmm. Chinese gate is usually two sculptures of lions. And if you look closely at the lions, one lion is holding a, a ball, and the other lion is holding a baby cub. And my book is about the cub and the ball and so that's what i'm Aww. writing about now so uh, it should be a middle grade novel so for probably about like fourth or fifth graders um if if all goes well <laughs> it's always you yeah. never know things might change by the time it comes out but right now that's the goal i've, I've noticed uh fifth graders are the group i do not connect with as much <laughs> uh you know they're my, very difficult fifth grader you know what i think is it's because fifth graders it depends on where, where where they're at fifth graders is when that big change is and like sixth grade is when the change is there <laughs> and like they're a little bit right. they're very jaded it's hard once they're jaded <laughs> that's exactly the term i would use yeah, yeah. <laughs> i'm like i could do the three-year-olds but when i when I make a joke to a fifth or sixth grader and they don't laugh. <laughs> not... You get the eye roll. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And then I'm just like, okay, never mind. Running. It's the third and fourth graders who are who are great because they really they understand everything you're trying to say and they're not jaded so that they're they still laugh and they're still like so eager to like to be they're so open to right. everything. Right, exactly. So I have a short game for you if you're up for sure. it. I do like a little lightning round. So I'm gonna pin two popular Chinese foods against each other and you're gonna pick which one okay. you rather have. <laughs> All right. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Okay. All right, first one, Kung Pao chicken versus General Tso's chicken. Oh gosh, that's a good one to ask. I, I would go for Kung mm. Pao chicken personally because only because it's a little healthier. And <laughs> you know, I'm at that age where you need to watch what you eat. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I should be too, honestly, but here we are. And, it's still, and they're both super delicious, so I don't feel like I'd be lo losing out on too much. <laughs> yeah, that's a fair point. All right, second one, mushu pork versus sweet and sour pork. Oh, I would go with the mushu all the way. Uh, I just love the mushu. You wrap it in like the whole, it's kind of, I always get really messy, but I, there's something about the whole, the whole step process that I love about the mushu pork. Mm -hmm. I think I would go sweet and sour, but I think I, I just like sweet in general. Mm. So I think that's, I think it depends on uh, my, my daughter would definitely go with the sweet and sour before that. She loves the, especially when they have pineapple, which is of course not traditional, not nothing they would have in China, but traditional in American Chinese food, but she loves it like chicken and the pineapple together. <laughs> oh, that is good. That's underrated. Third one, wonton soup versus bird's nest soup. Oh, I think that wonton soup, bird's nest soup is, it's interesting because you, and I also feel really bad depending on how they got the the ingredients, right? So, so I think bird's nest soup has a really interesting story, but I always worry that maybe they did not get these bird's nest in a very... Um, ecologically sound way so i don't want to support that so i would go with the wonton because which is also just as delicious <laughs> yeah that's that's good to know fourth one empress chicken versus beggar's chicken oh i have never had beggar's chicken so i would go with beggar's chicken all the way because i am so interested in having that that's supposed to be like the most delightful chicken in the world uh, if you've read the book uh, you will know that okay. beggar's chicken is a special chicken that they basically 
encased in this like mud cocoon, <laughs> that, like, mud and leaf, you know, special mud and leaf cocoon. And they steam it for like yeah. hours and hours and hours. And then to eat it, you have to crack open this cocoon. <laughs> and like, and the meat is supposed to be Whoa. so tender and juicy and delicious. It's supposed to be the best. So I would definitely try the beggar's chickens. I've never had it before, but I would love to try it. <laughs> I was reading through your book, but I didn't get to that part yet. <laughs> so I did not know that. That's so insane. That's crazy. Um, that sounds amazing. Wow. Uh, fifth one, egg rolls versus dumplings. Oh, I think I'll go with Stuff. the dumplings. Um, egg rolls, especially the egg rolls versus the spring rolls. Egg rolls are really doughy, though, and uh, they... Sometimes it really depends on where it's done. Sometimes they can be done kind of, uh, and sometimes they're done really well. But um, but dumplings tend to always be pretty good no matter where you go. So like for some reason, dumplings is uh, is more of a surefire delicious bet. <laughs> all right, all right, good point. And six one. This is super general. Noodles versus rice. Ooh, that is a very touchy question for all Asian people because um, almost everybody <laughs> equates rice with Chinese food. But the reason why we in the United States equate rice with Chinese food is because the Chinese restaurateurs that came here during the gold rush and when, when um, Chinese restaurants were first being established, they are all from Southern China. <laughs> and Southern China, rice is really, really important. But actually, in northern China, it's noodles that's really, really important. Um, and so, uh, so okay. if you go to China and you go to northern China, they don't really serve you rice. They serve you noodles. So um, it's very interesting. Um, I have to admit, we ate rice every day at my house. We were a very rice family. If you gave me the choice, you'd think I would choose rice, but I think I actually like noodles better. <laughs> Maybe because I we rice seems every day and noodles seem like ooh special. So I probably choose noodles. Yeah, <laughs> I agree. I I think the same actually because noodles I don't have as often and they're so good. <laughs> and rice is like something I eat pretty much every yeah. day. So I would choose. <laughs> okay, my final question for you. Normally I do one that's kind of like, what's your favorite thing to splurge on or appliance? But because you're not a chef, I switched it up for you. Oh, great. What is, <laughs> what is one Chinese dish that you think everyone should try at least once in their lifetime? Well, if you are not a vegetarian, I think everybody should at least try Peking duck once in your lifetime. Uh, because mm, it okay. is, uh, there's a reason why it's considered quite a delicacy they say that one of the reasons why Nixon opened up the borders to to mainland China was because when Henry Kissinger mm -hmm. came to the secret meeting to meet with Chinese people, they served him Peking duck and he just loved it so much. So uh, <laughs> it, there's a reason why they call it like duck diplomacy. So I would definitely say everybody should try mm -hmm. Peking duck. If you are a vegetarian and you don't want to try Peking duck, then gosh, there's still so many wonderful foods to eat that are vegetarian. But the one that came to mind, which they probably most vegetarians probably already know about, is Buddhist Delight. And that's mm -hmm. because there is a beautiful story about that. And uh, I, I would recommend everybody read the story and eat Buddhist Delight because um, it's really lovely. <laughs> and can they get that information in your book? Yes, you can get the story in the book. It's about uh, 18 monks who went and begging for food, mm -hmm. went begging for food, but they were not given enough uh, food. Each one was only given a little bit of food. Uh, and so, but they, so ne none of them were given enough food to make a meal, but 
when they pooled all their food together, they realized they could make a dish that they could all share. And it was delicious. And it was a delight. And that's what Buddha delight is. I love that. So that rolls right into my outro saying you could find the rest of the story if you purchase Chinese menu in stores or online. And you could also follow Gracelyn's journey on Instagram at P-A-C-Y-L-I-N. P-A-C-Y-L-I-N. Thanks so much. Amazing. Thank you so much. This was a wonderful conversation. And I honestly, I learned so much. So I appreciate it. (laughs) Hey, fellow foodies. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to leave me a review. And while you're at it, make sure to follow me at Living for Food Pod on Instagram or TikTok or email me at livingforfoodpod at gmail.com. Let me know what you're cooking up this week, which guests you would like to see on the podcast, or tell me your opinions on the latest viral food trend. Until next time, 